2012, an American entrepreneur who has at times been described as eccentric, named Russ George, dumped 120 metric tons of iron sulfate dust into the ocean off the western coast of Canada. This wasn't intended to be an act of destruction, nor was it an instance of dumping junk into the ocean to avoid paying to have it recycled or relegated to a scrap heap somewhere. George had earlier approached the indigenous residents of an archipelago, the Haida, the archipelago called the Haida Gwai, about a problem they were having with their local salmon populations. He told them that he could help them out with that if they could fund his effort to do so, and a company called the Haida Salmon Restoration Corporation was set up to funnel a few million dollars into the proposed project. The project itself involved mixing the aforementioned iron dust with seawater, and then releasing that seawater mixture into the ocean, about 200 nautical miles west of the Haida Gwaii, which itself is about 45 to 60 kilometers, which is about 30 to 40 miles, off the northern Pacific coast of Canada. So if you're looking at a map, it's a decent-sized chunk of land a ways up the coast from Vancouver Island. The goal was to artificially stimulate the creation of what's called a phytoplankton bloom via a technique called ocean fertilization. A phytoplankton bloom is sometimes considered to be desirable because it's thought that the plankton can gobble up CO2 from the atmosphere at the surface and then pull that CO2 down to the bottom of the ocean when they die, locking it into place for potentially a very long time. This, it was posited, would also help the Haida with their salmon problem, as the fish populations would have more plankton to eat, and thus would increase in number. For his part, George expected to be able to sell carbon drawdown credits on the carbon credit market based on the amount of CO2 pulled from the atmosphere down to the bottom of the ocean as a consequence of the creation of that bloom. Credits that, if the bloom was as big as he thought it would be, could net him millions of dollars on the international market. Satellite imagery-based evidence indicates that this effort was successful in the sense that it created a bloom with an area of about 10,000 square kilometers, which is about the size of Jamaica. And though it's difficult to say for certain whether it was directly connected to the oceanic fertilization, the Alaska Department of Fish and Game had a record-breaking salmon harvest the year after the project was completed. And in fact, that year, the number of salmon caught in the whole of the northeastern Pacific Ocean more than quadrupled from about 50 million to 226 million fish. There are some who have celebrated this project as a success, including George himself. Though in interviews following the experiment, he was cautious, saying that the data would show them how successful things really were, rather than anecdote and adjacent findings. Unfortunately for George, that data was confiscated by the Canadian government, and George and the Haida and everyone else involved has been lambasted for their involvement in what the majority of scientists in relevant fields have called a destructive, careless experiment 
conducted by a rogue scientist for personal gain. And there may be some truth to that. Russell George has a spotty history of pursuing questionable avenues of research, cold fusion, and more specifically, acoustic cavitation being two fairly recent ambitions, both of which were declared unlikely to ever work by most of the scientific community after a period of widespread research, but George continued to work on his research into these now generally considered to be borderline pseudoscientific areas, and he did so outside the halls of formal institutions. He's also proven himself to be a fairly unreliable business person, with a lot of ideas and few successes of any scale, and he has a way of communicating that makes it easy to discount his ideas, sort of like a vehement Greenpeace enthusiast, an organization that he's worked with off and on, by the way, mixed with the type of politician that has a whole lot of bluster and anti-establishment rhetoric alongside a fair bit of perceived victimhood, but not a lot of evidence for the supposition that he's actually being victimized or is actually capable of doing any of the things that he is most enthusiastic about. That said, part of the issue here is not George's character, but the concept of geoengineering to begin with. Geoengineering projects are meant to help us tweak the settings of natural processes and ecosystems. The theory is that if we can understand how these things fit together, we can adjust them when something goes wrong, or when we cause problems, thereby returning environments to a more balanced functional state, but also, potentially, giving us the ability to optimize these same ecosystems for other purposes, increasing the salmon population, for instance, by increasing the population of the critters they eat. There are international resolutions in place that Russell George violated in undertaking this project, some of which deal with specific scientific research that has a commercial implication, George wanting to benefit from carbon credits while also being paid to bring back fish populations, and supposedly wanting to gather data on this type of geoengineering project falls into that category. But there are also regulations regarding dumping waste at sea, and messing with animal populations in a way that can negatively impact biodiversity. In this case, a phytoplankton bloom could be great for plankton, for salmon, and for other creatures that eat that plankton, but maybe not for other creatures within those same ecosystems that occupy similar niches, and potentially not even for those that are seemingly benefiting, because overpopulation can also become an issue in many different ways over time. In the years following this iron dust dumping, the Haida have booted George from the Salmon Restoration Corporation. He sued them in response, and then they sued him back for, they claim, lying about his credentials and qualifications, assaulting the project leader, and acting in a, quote, irrational, unprofessional, and offensive manner, end quote. The data collected during this particular project was released to the public in 2014, and overall research into 13 major experiments of this kind since 1990 have indicated that ocean fertilization is unproven. Scientists saw no evidence that the project worked as intended in the case of the Haida's efforts, 
There was evidence of a large bloom that stuck around for months, but they haven't been able to tie that definitively to the surplus salmon populations in subsequent years. Nor were they able to show that there was any carbon sequestration taking place as a result of that bloom. The Ballad of Russ George gestures, in some ways, at the larger story of major climate engineering technologies and techniques that may work, even if only in some ways in some circumstances, and for some outcomes, but which, perhaps rightfully, are shunned by the majority of the scientific world as being too potentially harmful to casually experiment with, and far too dangerous to undertake on larger, climactically meaningful scales because of that same danger, and because of the lack of any way to undo what's been done if things do indeed go sideways as a result of one of them being implemented. What I'd like to talk about today are some of the potential theoretical solutions of this kind that may prove beneficial in our species-wide effort to prevent catastrophic levels of global climate change, along with the hurdles involved, potential dangers associated with them, and what capabilities they might add to our utility belts if they do prove to be both knowable and practical at some point in the future. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from Bloomberg, and it's entitled The Fast, Cheap, and Scary Way to Cool the Planet, with the subtitle Blocking Sunlight with Technology is Feasible. It's only a matter of time until someone tries it. This piece is about a geoengineering concept that involves the artificial application of what are called atmospheric aerosols. As noted in the article, when volcanoes erupt, they throw tons of stuff up into the atmosphere. A lot of it ash, but some of it sulfur dioxide, SO2, which then sticks around in the lower stratosphere for quite a while. After Mount Pinatubo in the Philippines erupted in 1991, global temperatures dropped by half a degree Celsius and stayed that way for about two years. It's tempting to look at such an occurrence and think, okay, global temperatures are rising and at a fairly frightening speed. What if we could just drop those temperatures back down by mimicking volcanic eruptions? Mount Pinatubo was estimated to have pumped about 20 million metric tons of SO2 into the atmosphere when it erupted, and that gas in particular is key to the resultant temperature drop. It reflects sunlight off the atmosphere, bouncing it back into space before it can enter the atmosphere, reducing the overall amount of energy that becomes heat down here on the surface. So if we could inject sufficient SO2 into the atmosphere, we should be able to achieve the same thing, right? And if we could do so on a regular basis, why couldn't we just keep doing that for as long as is necessary, reducing the terrifying impetus to make other changes to our behaviors and economies post-haste? The short answer to that question is that there are other not-so-beneficial consequences to reflecting sunlight off the atmosphere in this way. Volcanic injections of SO2 are made worse 
Due to all of that ash pollution, the crazy amount of particulates and toxic metals that they bring to the surface, and the at times devastating explosion with which all that stuff is shot skyward. But SO2 alone and its impact would not be negative consequence free. SO2, to start, is a pollutant that we inject into the atmosphere already through our industrial activities and the burning of fossil fuels and it contributes to the death of about 4 million people each year through its impact on the human respiratory and circulatory systems. It causes and leads to coughing, wheezing, shortness of breath, and in consistent or larger doses, heart disease, stroke, and lung cancer. It also combines with other substances to become harmful compounds like sulfuric acid, sulfurous acid, and sulfate particles, and it can rain down upon us as acid rain, which kills plants and can degrade buildings and other man-made structures. It may also contribute to poking holes in the ozone layer, completely removing SO2 from the atmosphere would consequently quite possibly be wonderful for the health of human beings and other living creatures, but it would probably be catastrophic if we did it all at once as doing so would increase global temperatures by an average of at least half a degree Celsius. So what's up there now already reflects some sunlight, and losing that reflectivity would allow even more sun heat onto the planet and into our systems. The contrast, though, of adding more up there would be sort of like taking poison to cure a cold. Yes, you might kill off the cold virus, but there's a decent chance that you'll also maim or kill yourself in the trade-off. The crux of this piece, though, is the concern that large-scale bioengineering projects like atmospheric aerosol injection are getting to the point where, one, they're decently well understood, at least in terms of the fundamentals. Two, they're cheap enough to actually attempt without spending all of the world's money to do so. And three, we have individuals and organizations around the world that might decide that they should give this type of project a try. And importantly, there are such individuals and organizations that have the ability to do so. I talked a bit about Russell George in the intro and his fairly small-scale experiment up in Canadian waters, dumping about 120 tons of iron dust into the ocean to catalyze a natural reaction that he hoped would benefit the ecosystem and the planet. That project cost a few million dollars, all told. It's estimated that injecting 5 million tons of an aerosol that increases the albedo, the reflectiveness, of the atmosphere far enough into the sky to be effective, probably around 20 to 30 kilometers, which is about 12.4 to 18.6 miles, would cost somewhere in the neighborhood of two to eight billion dollars. That would probably need to be done every year, and it's fair bet that it would get cheaper with time as we refined our artillery or balloons or however else we decided to deliver the chemical goods into the stratosphere. And it's estimated that it could provide a buffer of around 20 years if we kept it going preventing an estimated $200 billion to $2 trillion worth of climate change-related damage every single one of those 20 years or so. And that $2 to $8 billion is not nothing, but to a wealthy country, 
even to a wealthy organization or corporation or individual. As I record this, Jeff Bezos alone is worth nearly $150 billion. For these sorts of entities, that's essentially pocket change. And for how much money and how much potential suffering such an investment could potentially prevent worldwide, that approximately $5 billion it would cost each year is essentially nothing. But the negative repercussions would almost certainly be substantial. Consider the damage done to humanity, not to mention nature, in the past as a result of volcanic eruptions halfway around the world. Less sunlight means lower crop yields, which leads to famine. Uprisings result from famine and a great deal of death from plagues that result from weaker immune systems, hobbled social systems, and upended food webs. Wars also tend to erupt under such circumstances, due in large part to that new and sudden finitude. And this is a relatively small issue in comparison, but increasingly, it's more and more of an issue, we would generate substantially less energy from solar power. We would consume a lot more fuel to warm ourselves, and we would need to be incredibly efficient and effective in terms of decarbonizing our economies and industries during that period. Because when we stopped injecting stuff into the atmosphere, or if we were ever unable to do so, forced to stop for whatever reason, the come down from that reflective state would be sudden and dramatic. Within weeks, things would shift back to where they would have been, otherwise lacking that reflective protection, and things would be potentially worsened due to the effects of whatever aerosol we decided to use, and due to that slingshot-like effect of suddenly changing from one temperature range to a dramatically different one. Also important to note, and this is not limited just to this type of geoengineering, by the way, it's a likely issue with any that we might attempt, is that the changes that occur planet-side as a result of mucking about in the atmosphere would be uneven. Some areas would cool down, others would heat up. Some areas would experience more and more intense droughts, while others would start flooding for the first time ever. Storms might increase in potency or disappear altogether, depending on where you're at on the planet. Devastating coastlines and crops, depleting trade winds, or our ability to travel through some areas during some seasons. There's apparently concern, based on modeling that's been done, as part of the Geoengineering Model Intercomparison Project, that aerosol injection in the stratosphere would lead to more moisture staying up in the stratosphere, and a temperature change up there as well, which could impact stratospheric circulation, which in turn would impact circulation down on Earth, but would also, on average, leave the whole planet drier than usual. More water would stay up there, and less would fall to Earth. And in some regions in particular, like India, where they are highly reliant on monsoon cycles for water, that could be the end of that region being habitable for human beings in a practical way. And all of this at a moment in which the traditional overarching villain of climate change modeling, CO2, has reached its highest ever levels. And that's despite the recent downswing in activity due to COVID-19 pandemic-related shutdowns. So even after major economies and industrial outfits around the world shut down for months, significantly dropping the amount of greenhouse gases and other pollutants they're pumping into the atmosphere, 
readings from the Scripps Institution of Oceanography, and the National Oceanic and Atmosphere Administration, the NOAA, recorded May 2020's CO2 and the Atmosphere Average at a little over 417 parts per million, which is the highest ever monthly average value ever recorded, up from 414.7 parts per million in May of 2019. In context, that means May of 2020's readings of CO2 in the atmosphere is the highest in human history, and likely the highest in about 300 million years. And the last time CO2 levels were this high, average global temperatures were 2 to 3 degrees Celsius, which is about 3.6 to 5.4 degrees Fahrenheit, higher than modern pre-industrial readings. And global sea levels were about 50 to 80 feet, which is about 15 to 25 meters, higher than they are today. Which, again, is not good. These are not good indicators for humanity's future. Not because we're likely to all suddenly die from a shift in the average temperature. These are averages, and some areas will be more hit than others, and these temperatures fluctuate from season to season anyway. So while some areas will keep hitting new extremes, racking up new record highs and lows, the real threat is that the range of potential temperatures and weather events will shift, which will move us from the range that we've existed within throughout our entire history as a species into a new range that we and the species upon which we're reliant are not built for. That means potentially our food web could weaken or collapse. Our crops could cease to grow as they've grown since the Industrial Revolution, which is when our populations began to balloon, so we very much need food to keep growing at a steady clip. It also means that our buildings, our water processing mechanisms, our water tables and cycles, our cities, which are built on certain types of foundations, which could shift from a change in rainfall and a change in temperature range, our architectural methods, which account for certain types of weather and climate zones, they could all be inadequate or completely incorrect for what comes next, optimized for the wrong things, for a reality that doesn't exist anymore. Coastlines could disappear as the water rises and coastal climates shift, leading to more dramatic weather swings and weather events, which, considering that 40% of the global human population lives in counties that are within impact range, within about 60 miles or 100 kilometers of shorelines, is not ideal. This could lead to immense increases in homelessness, could drop production and manufacturing and shipping from interests that are primarily located on coasts, which, because of how historically important oceanic shipping has been, is a lot of them. And it could lead to massive migrations of people, fleeing coastal towns and cities, moving inland, trying to migrate internationally, too, to places that are less dramatically or less negatively impacted in turn straining infrastructure across the board and creating new social issues and humanitarian nightmares as a result. This all adds credence to the idea that someone or a group of someones could decide to take this issue into their own hands at some point in the future. There are many possible ways that this could happen, many different opportunities to potentially adjust the dial on the climate, and the weather patterns, temperatures, and so on that are influenced by it. There's some evidence that putting a giant reflective surface between the Earth and the Sun at a relatively balanced, stable position between the two, called a Lagrange point, 
or more specifically the L1 Lagrange point, could reflect enough sunlight so that the Earth can cool without the downsides of injecting potentially dangerous, exacerbating aerosols into the atmosphere, with the bonus ability to very quickly change things if necessary. This solar shield could either be turned remotely, using signals from Earth to trigger its thrusters like any other satellite, to pivot or move it on demand, or it could be built like a solar sail, using photons from the sun instead of wind, to pivot or move it, if and when we need to. This is an appealing idea, though not without issues. First among them is that it's a largely untested concept. We've put basic, small, reflective surfaces into orbit around the Earth before, but never at a Lagrange point, and never on this scale. This type of mirror, to be effective in the way that we would need it to be, would have to be about 600,000 square kilometers in total area, about 230,000 square miles or so, in order to reflect just 1% of the sunlight that typically reaches Earth. That's a mirror about the size of France that we would need to build, launch into space, move about 100 million miles to the Sun-Earth L1 point, and then put it all together, keep it repaired, and keep it balanced, so that it doesn't shift from its ideal location, while also retaining the ability to move it quickly, if the impact is too harsh, or if we realize we made a big mistake after all of that investment of time and energy. The cost of such an endeavor was estimated in a feasibility study in 2006, and the concept proposed in that study, which assumed at least three major new technological developments before it could actually work, was in the neighborhood of several trillion dollars, with a potential deployment of around 25 years after work on it begins in earnest. So it would cost an estimated 0.5% of total worldwide GDP, and if we started in 2020, it wouldn't be functional until 2045 at the very earliest, according to this study. This option would be unlikely to be undertaken by a non-government, non-multinational organization, but versions of it become more thinkable as space becomes privatized, and corporations like SpaceX build out fleets of craft, including satellite swarms, that could conceivably be launched with additional capabilities on the down-low, and then merged Voltron-like into a mirror in space after being put up there with other ostensible purposes, like beaming internet down to the surface of the planet. This is unlikely and unlikely to work if it was done with today's technology, and any company that tried such a maneuver would be unlikely to get away with it, lacking major government support. The people in charge of such companies would almost certainly be arrested, fined into oblivion, and or killed by someone who disagrees with their unilateral altering of the planet's climate. More within reach are ground-based options, like the aforementioned plankton blooms, but also other approaches predicated on the use of natural components, just on a much larger than usual scale. Carbon farming, sometimes called regenerative agriculture, is one such option that's already attracted a great deal of support, especially from politicians and businesses. The concept works like this. Soil can store carbon dioxide through photosynthesis, with plants sucking in CO2 and converting it into more plants. They turn it into leaves and sugars and roots, 
and then eventually they are either eaten or they tuck that CO2 into the soil long-term through natural die-off processes. Much of the world's farmland is currently inefficient when it comes to soaking up CO2 and storing it in the ground in this way. Modern agricultural methods are very good at producing a whole lot of food and other types of resources, but are typically not optimized for CO2 pull-down. It's been posited, though, that if farmers were to plant cover crops between harvests, drill seeds into the soil rather than upturning soil through tilling, and generally enrich their soil through natural methods rather than some of the industrialized processes that, again, are great for yield but often terrible in terms of CO2, they may be able to put a serious dent in atmospheric carbon dioxide levels while also creating a new source of revenue for farmers, carbon offset credits, which is the same asset Russell George was looking to generate for himself by stimulating the creation of plankton blooms, if you recall. This approach has a lot of potential, in part because it is land-based and doesn't require messing with the atmosphere or mucking about in space, and in part because it's predicated on existing technologies and infrastructure. Unfortunately, there's just a lot that we don't know yet in terms of what works best in different climates, with different types of soil, and within different economic setups. We also don't know enough about how this actually plays out long-term. For instance, if those gains in CO2 storage in the soil are effective over years, or only months, or maybe less. And we don't know enough about negative incentives that might emerge as a consequence of this type of shift to say for certain that it would be a net positive. Farmers and governments that benefit from the monetary success of these agricultural efforts could decide to focus intensely on the carbon credit side of this shift, leading to less food for locals, collapsing existing agricultural-reliant industries, and perhaps creating new problems related to the refocusing on these different approaches, perhaps even pumping more CO2 into the atmosphere than they draw down as a result. Instead of farms, it's possible that we could just plant huge swaths of new forests, or maybe cover the world's lakes and ponds with algae, an approach that's sometimes called terraforming, a term that is usually applied to attempting to convert the biosphere of other planets to make them more Earth-like, but which in recent years has also been applied to using similar techniques on Earth to make it more livable, based on pre-industrial standards for the term livable. In both cases, we'd be increasing the amount of CO2-devouring entities to counter our production of the same, which is how things work naturally, and which is, thus, a feather in the cap of this type of approach, as it's something that we know works. It's something that we have the technology for, just planting trees and stimulating the growth of algae, and it's something that we have decent data for already though more research is absolutely warranted, especially in terms of figuring out how to avoid planting the wrong sorts of trees, how to avoid accidentally creating invasive species-related issues, how to avoid succumbing to the attraction and consequential downsides of monoculture, and how to avoid collapsing food webs by overburdening them with too much algae or too many of a tree or other plant that is great for soaking up CO2 but potentially bad in other ways, at least at that scale. It's also worth noting that research published in 2019 found that Earth's ecosystem could probably support about 2.2 billion acres of additional forests, 
which would increase existing forest area by about 25%. If we maxed that out, we could capture about 205 gigatons of carbon from the atmosphere over time, which could negate about 20 years' worth of human-produced carbon emissions at today's rate, which is pretty good. That said, once those trees have soaked up that CO2, that's pretty much all they can soak up, and that carbon doesn't stay captured forever. If the forests burn, for instance, it's released right back up into the atmosphere, and we likely wouldn't be able to plant more trees beyond that, based on the estimated carrying capacity of our ecosystems. So such an effort would only ever be a one-off, temporary subsolution. There's another natural concept, weathering, that has been periodically brought up as a potential solution to the climate-related changes we face, if it were to be amplified and optimized for the scale of the problem. And a variation of that natural concept that would allow us to scale up in this way is often called enhanced weathering. When rocks, soil, minerals, woods, and other types of substances are broken down by natural processes, through contact with water, the atmosphere, or with organisms that break them down, the resulting constituent parts can react with other substances and create new substances, and in some cases other effects. In the case of some silicate and carbonate minerals, mere exposure of the mineral to rainwater can cause the mineral to react with atmospheric CO2 to create new bicarbonate ions, which are often then converted into carbonate minerals by what are called calcifying organisms, like coral, starfish, crustaceans, and mollusks. Again, this is something that happens already, naturally. Certain types of minerals break down when they're exposed to rainwater, and the more surface area of these minerals that is exposed, the more CO2 it can soak up as a part of a chemical reaction, which results in a more neutral substance that is useful to all kinds of organisms to make shells and reefs and such, but importantly, captures that CO2 and turns it into something else. The logic of enhanced weathering is to utilize these processes on scale, either by crushing up existing silicate minerals so that more surface area is exposed to the air and more reactions can then take place, the upside of which is that more CO2 is pulled down from the atmosphere as part of what amounts to a natural chemical reaction with rainwater. There are a lot of unknowns here, though, from whether a saturation point might be reached, limiting the scale of further reactions, and whether or not rainfall might prove to be a ceiling on how much weathering can happen within a given period of time. It's also possible that scaling up a process like this might lead to negative secondary consequences, overloading the ecosystem with too much bicarbonate, which could then upend some very fragile, already under-assault food chains, for instance. Recent research has indicated that the most serious ceiling on this possibility is, first, the availability of sufficient amounts of the requisite starter minerals, which are abundant, but not necessarily abundant where we need them to be abundant for this to work as planned at the necessary scales, and second, the availability of sufficient rainwater in the right places, which could be solved using an alternative approach that involves crushing up these minerals and scattering them on beaches rather than land, so that the tide can do the breaking down rather than the rainfall. Though some early research indicates that this might reduce the potency of the pull-down 
due to the pH levels of seawater compared to rainwater. A similar concept is also potentially useful when it comes to capturing CO2, where it is generated in industrial facilities and power plants, part of what's often called carbon capture and storage, pumping CO2 directly from sites, producing a great deal of the CO2 that we make into stockpiles of underground minerals, where it can then, with time, be soaked up into those minerals in a weathering fashion, producing bicarbonate at scale in a relatively safe-removed location, limiting potential negative externalities to the environment in the process, or at least that's the theory. There are still a lot of unknowns with this option as well, but it's relatively cheap and easy to experiment with, and I would honestly be surprised if someone didn't attempt an official or rogue large-scale application of this concept at some point in the next decade, whether that's a corporation or a government or an individual. There seems to be a lot of promise in some application of enhanced weathering, and the ease of application requiring relatively little money, space, and resources to do it is very interesting and potentially quite appealing to someone with big ambitions and the best of intentions and little use for international regulations that outright ban or slow geoengineering through the use of a bunch of hurdles and requisite sign-offs. The appeal of all of these types of solutions, though, is that they're like taking a pill loaded with serious drugs in an attempt to ameliorate some also quite serious medical condition. There's a huge risk, but at least we don't have to change the fundamentals of how we live if the pill works, if we survive taking it. That's the general logic of these sorts of concepts, every single one of them. The far less risky, more sustainable, and probably with time more potent options, unfortunately, are more akin to making serious lifestyle changes to avoid those same health issues. They're not immediate. They require sacrifice, at least at first. And they require changing our conception of the status quo, which is never easy, politically or psychologically. One such solution is just to go completely renewable with our energy production as quickly as possible, which, again, wouldn't solve our problems immediately, but it would dramatically decrease our continued contribution to those problems, and would lessen the intensity of the worst-case scenarios we can expect as a consequence of what we've already done to the environment. The short term of this isn't necessarily pleasant. It's not the end of the world, and a lot has already been done, with a lot more on the books, for near-future implementation. But current green solutions for energy require a lot of trade-offs. Like all of the issues surrounding mining lithium for many of our batteries, and all of the issues that come from using traditional acid batteries, which are a major component of the solar-based systems that we have installed around the world at the moment. It also requires that a lot of expensive existing infrastructure be replaced, and that a lot of currently quite powerful people and entities either change everything about how they do business, or get out of the way, while everyone else does, which is not typically how people, businesses, and organizations behave when their power and way of doing things are threatened. There are intermediate capitalism-based systems that could help with this, including the setting and trading of carbon offset credits, which would essentially determine how much CO2 a country or company or person can emit legally over a period of time, capping the maximum amount 
that is released into the atmosphere each year in total, worldwide, in theory at least, and then giving companies that need to emit more the ability to do so, and those who want to greenify and reduce their emissions the incentive of then being able to sell their carbon credits to those who want to emit more. So there would be an entire separate market of assets that represent the amount of carbon each of these entities is able to emit in a given period. And those could then be traded, monetarily benefiting those who reduce the amount that they need to release, and financially incentivizing those who have to pay for them to reduce their own outputs in the future. Alongside this, entrepreneurs and states that are able to figure out ways to pull CO2 from the atmosphere would potentially be able to benefit from carbon offset credits, basically saying we can pump this much more CO2 into the air because we paid this offset entity to have that same amount removed from the air using one of these mechanisms for doing so. This combination of credit types is actually one of the more thinkable solutions of all of the concepts that I've mentioned. And it's been on the books for debate and potential implementation on the global stage for a while now. Unfortunately, though, to work, it requires that pretty much everyone buys in, especially the world's wealthiest and most pollution-producing governments. And especially as the less wealthy world starts to come into their own, many of these wealthy countries, as they begin to feel more threatened than usual, are also increasingly less inclined to give advantages to those upstart barbarians at the gate. Thus, it's a decent idea that plays relatively well with a lot of existing ways of doing things, including continuing to allow governments and businesses to operate as usual for a while if they can afford to pay for it. But it's still a long way from being a reality due to a lot of adjacent economic, geopolitical, and influence-related issues that unfortunately have stymied its progress so far. What's somewhat remarkable about all this, though, is that in some ways, it's more thinkable that a giant space mirror the size of France would be built and positioned between the Earth and the Sun than that fundamental changes would or could be made to the global economic system that's taken hold since World War II. The latter is technically something we could do tomorrow, with some difficulty and a lot of confusion, granted, but it's technically possible because it doesn't require any new technologies just some new ways of thinking and organizing ourselves. The former, on the other hand, along with pretty much all of the other methods I've mentioned in this episode, require a lot of research, a lot of development, and a lot of investment of time and resources. And still they wouldn't be guaranteed to work, at all, or as planned, and would almost certainly come with a lot of unintended consequences, primary, secondary, and so on. A good heuristic to keep in mind for this discussion is to remember that most options won't be immediate, and even at their most perfect implementation, will not stop some of the negative consequences we already have coming over the next hundred years. They'll just prevent even worse consequences from arising alongside them. Also, no one knows for certain how well or not well most of these concepts would actually function, in part because funding for experimentation in this area is a big no-no in many corners of the scientific and bureaucratic world, which is part of why we're doing a lot of theorizing and very little testing, despite the increasingly dire circumstances. Which, honestly, is probably prudent, as any one of these options could potentially cause a lot of damage to uninvolved, blameless people and systems, but it's also arguably prudent, 
to do a lot of experimentation now so that if needs warrant it and things really start to spiral, we have some potentially dangerous pills, the greenification equivalent of early chemotherapy, on hand that we can take if we really need to. The consequences we face, perhaps eventually, justifying the use of an incredibly risky, potentially equally dire solution that nonetheless at that moment might be our only option. The book that I'd like to recommend today is highly relevant to this week's episode. It's called Veil by Elliot Pepper. And Veil is a near-future science fiction novel that is about a rogue geoengineering experiment. And I don't want to give away anything more than that, but in essence, it's exactly what I was talking about in this episode, and what the ramifications and consequences of that decision and that action turn out to be. If that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Veil by Elliot Pepper. You can find out more about me and my work, including the books that I've written, at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the show at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast at brainlenses.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on Instagram and Twitter and such. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week.